Young Money Podcast, where Teddy Youngrice interviews young entrepreneurs, hustlers, and innovators to get a first-hand view into the exciting future and the people who will lead us there. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, all good. How are you doing? Good, good. I like the uh, the virtual background, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's my uh, my go-to work background for my uninspiring white wall behind me. Nice. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been good. Uh, funny enough, I feel like we we did a, a swap. I, I just moved to New York from uh, SF, so oh, gonna, nice. Settle in, yeah. Where in uh, where in New York are you living? Um, near like Midtown area. Cool. Yeah. Very fun. Yeah. Nice on the east side or west side or. Um, like 58th and 58th and 6th area, kind of right in the middle. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, super nice. Yeah. Um, uh, how about you? How's, are you in LA right now? Yes, I'm in LA. I moved out to West Hollywood, so it's a lot of fun. I mean, like, LA is totally open now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a fun neighborhood for sure. But yeah. very cool. What brought you to New York? Are you just, like, looking to switch it up or? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been, um, my, so I have, like, a family apartment here, second home, so I've, Nice. Grown up coming to New York my whole life. Actually, I mean, kind of relevant here. Um, a lot of my friends from Stanford, I feel like a lot of Stanford people went to New York more more so than the Bay Area, maybe just on volume or just because a lot of people, there's more career options in New York. But right. what, what held me back, because I, I, I love New York, I love the energy here. Um, but what held me back was like, I feel like I wanted to be in the tech scene and be in Silicon Valley. I was at Facebook, I wanted to be in the headquarters. Um, all that. And then with COVID, I kind of realized, you know, things have changed and um, it's a good opportunity to kind of mix it up and start somewhere new. So. Yeah, no, I think for sure. I think, I think what's also fun is like, I feel like COVID, a lot of people shuffled around and then they were like, they moved cities while it was like closed. Yeah. Uh, And then like now things are opening up. I feel like people are in like different cities and like way more eager to make friends because like, they're like, Oh, I moved here and I didn't have like a huge crew necessarily. Yeah, exactly um and and where where are you originally from just wondering uh i went i moved around on the west coast a bunch but my family was in the area so i went to high school in palo alto okay and then went to new york and then la nice so you're covering all your bases then yeah yeah the whole like little trifecta there yeah awesome well well justice i really appreciate you being on this um like i was telling you i just kind of i wanted to do something like this in january actually uh, yeah. And then kind of just realize that actually initially I was going to do it with a couple of friends from Stanford and do like us three talking about topics. And I realized that they didn't really care that much about it and that I, I cared more about it. And then also realized the interview format, it's actually more scalable and it's just more fun to kind of catch up with friends and like, yeah, stay in loop on like different topics and also help my friends kind of like, you know, get a platform and, and kind of put themselves out there or whatever they're working on. Um, but yeah, so, um, it's been fun, uh, definitely good experience. It's a great excuse to catch up with friends, but, um, the way, way, you know, the format's been pretty laid back. Um, the way I usually like to start is just like getting a background on, on guests. So as like, just from the start, justice, like, I'd love to have you share your story of, uh, how, yeah, how you got into startups, um, you know, your background, everything, and, and kind of how that led to you, you to where you are now. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, how far back are we talking? You want to like, I can say like how I ended up here at Clash or whatever. Yeah, yeah I mean, however far you want to go back. <laughs> sure. I mean, that's fun. Um, yeah. yeah, let's see. I mean, I moved around on the West Coast a bunch. My dad was a basketball coach. I'm very tall, six seven, but I was never, I was never very good at basketball. 
So I kind of had to do my own thing um, and was, you know, decent school. So like, I think that's how I ultimately moved around a bunch, but landed in Palo Alto. Um, and then, you know, I think just by osmosis, I ended up kind of getting in kind of the realm of tech and Stanford and ended up going to Stanford just by like who I was around. Yeah. Um, even though like my whole family, right. Even though they're in Palo Alto, they're all like in athletics. Like, my mom's a PE teacher. My brother's really good at basketball. I think it was kind of abnormal for me, but um, just to think, you know, neighbors who are VCs and like yeah, yeah, yeah. you go to your brother's like little league games and they're selling their companies and you're like, wow, this is such a weird space. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so I think, yeah, just like had a lot of exposure to that. Um, and then at Stanford, I uh, studied MCS, like math, computer science, but or like mathematical computational science. But it was like never really into academics. I don't know what your experience was like, but I got a lot from other things I was doing, um, yeah. like student government and stuff and um, tried out a bunch of different things over the summers. Uh, you know, consulting at McKinsey one summer, software engineering, Facebook another. Um, I did a startup in Indonesia one summer. Oh wow! In the, the fashion space. Um, what, what was? And I think what, uh, was that? what was that like? Or what was yeah. the app? Yeah. Or what was um, that startup? It was called um, at the time. It was called Sales Stock Indonesia, um, and they were trying to. Uh, they were basically a bunch of ex Google engineers who were trying to do like AI at like every level of like demand, supply, distribution, and for fast fashion. So like, how do you replicate fast fashion without child labor in Southeast Asia? So like, you know, I worked on like, you know, referencing what were people looking on the feed? So like, oh, you stop scrolling, you're interested, you click in, you're very interested, you buy, you're super interested. Yeah. And then cross-reference that with like all the influencers. So like, what are influencers wearing on Instagram? And like, okay, like black is in, blazers are very popular. We have no black blazers. Go make a black blazer because you're making 50 products a week. Um, so it was cool. It was just, it was very different. I think it changed my perspective too. It's like, and it was very developing, but uh, the tech is still just as good. So you end up skipping a lot of steps as you're developing there um, uh, to cater to like that population. So it's not that you like sacrifice tech per se. Cool. Um, yeah. And then I mean, after Stanford, um, I ended up going into consulting with McKinsey in New York City. And um, I think it's a great first job. Um, learned a ton, met a lot of awesome people. But then I think coming out of that, I felt like I just had so many, frankly, like credentials and safety nets. I just wanted to do something a bit riskier. Um, and I think, you know, stop trying to minimize your downside and start trying to like maximize your upside. It's like up, like, you know, uncapped upside potential. Um, and uh, I quit McKinsey in the middle of the summer, like in the heat of the pandemic, went back to New York and I dyed my hair green. I was just like super over it. Yeah. Um, and uh, then I was originally planning on going to work for a Senate campaign, hmm. but then my friend called me, said like, hey, there's a startup that's like kind of becoming a thing. It was a hobby. They pushed the app early with all the TikTok uncertainty. They're yeah. kind of like maybe a TikTok replacement. Um, and I agreed to come out and help for a week. And then I never left since. So that's how I found myself here at Clack. That's a great story. Yeah, definitely, definitely uh, can relate with a lot of the points you said there. Um, 
but uh, yeah, I guess like starting the beginning. Um, yeah, no, I would say with the academics part, I feel like you get to, you kind of focus on academics. I don't know if you were like me in like high school and then you realize in college, it's like, okay, getting an A plus in a class doesn't necessarily mean much anymore. I mean, it's all about learning, but it's not like that's going to, like in terms of the business world, obviously for like, you know, graduate degrees and kind of higher professions, you want to know your, your craft, but I feel like for everything else, it's, you kind of learn by doing. So that's at least been yeah. my, my, my take on it. Yeah. And I think too, I mean, like I struggled with this a lot, like especially my senior year and I was like uh, doing student government. I was like, hey, this is you exec. And it was like, I would have meetings with like the board of trustees or like the provost or like these different people. And I'm like, I'm the only one who is in this meeting. Like I'm the only student showing up to this. Yeah. Um, like nobody else is. And I was like, there's a hundred people in this math 104 class. And I literally don't care. Uh, <laughs> you know, like I, I, it's just like, I'm not going to be number one. There's yeah, a bunch of people yeah. here. Yeah. Like, where is my unique experience and like my unique learning? Yeah. Um, and so that was kind of always the trade-off I feel like I was making. And it was kind of difficult to realize or to validate at the time. But now I have no regrets about it. Yeah. No. And, and yeah, you did Facebook. I remember that. I remember we, we crossed paths, um, Facebook, interning there. So you got a, a, oh, good, yeah. a good taste of kind of like software engineering, traditional engineering, big company um big consulting and then a startup that's like a, i feel like you, that you kind of covered covered mostly everything with that yeah i think i was you know i think college you should optimize or like while you're young just like optimize your breadth of experience you know like go do consulting or finance in new york and then work in la media and influencers and like why not you know full send it every way like yeah, except yeah. oil and gas in dallas <laughs> exactly um yeah, and I, and I I like interrupted you earlier, but I'm curious about the like that Indonesian startup. How did you uh, end up working there? Like, I feel like Indo like a fast fashion uh, startup in Southeast Asia, like four years ago. It's pretty ahead of the curve, and probably a lot of like maybe not a lot, but some learnings from that to like what you're doing now. Yeah, um, I think so. I, I came out of sophomore year, had him work at McKinsey. I was pretty happy with it. So I was pretty sure I was going to go back full time. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I am satisfied with the experience. Like what? And, I, you know, I was pretty sure I was going to go back. So I'm not going to like, I want to do something really different. Like super, yeah. you know, this feels like a, an opportunity just to be like, okay, have this like free summer. What can I do? Um, and I wanted it all to be very distinct. So I was trying to go abroad. Um, and then I was also trying to, I just think, do not like something big in corporate. Mm -hmm. um, so I like, you know, I think talked to like my PMA, who was at the GDSB. And he was like, uh, oh, you're, you know, he was my advisor. He said like, oh, I had a student years ago who uh, now runs like a VC firm in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. So I talked to him about joining his VC firm as like an intern for the summer. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, it might make some more sense for you to join a portfolio company. And he introduced me to sales stock. Um, and sales talk was really cool. I mean, I think the, the biggest learnings for me were a lot more about, uh, I learned a little bit about startup environments. Um, but I think, you know, they were relatively mature. I think they had like 600 employees at the time, um, maybe like 150 corporate and like 400 and like the warehouses and stuff. Yep. Um, and, uh, I, yeah, I, I think what was really interesting about sales talk was that, um, they had great tech. But we're working on very different problems. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 
the joke is in Indonesia, if you were to launch Facebook there, you would need to have a thousand person call center um, just to teach people how to use the like button because everybody is like relatively unfamiliar with the internet. Yeah. And so, you know, what that resulted in was like Salesforce had like some of the best chat bots in the world because they had huge customer service needs, right. um, much more so than like the US typically has where everybody's using customer support. Um, and so like the need for a chat bot becomes much higher. Um, so they were like Facebook's like marquee chatbot partner and okay. um, a bunch of other things. So it was super interesting kind of getting that perspective of like, you know, the world doesn't progress technologically in a linear fashion. It's yeah. not like, a, you know, how I think a lot of people in the West and in Silicon Valley think about it. Yeah. And, and even with like, uh, like you said, the technology is available in other parts of the world, but then it's more about the adoption is different. And how do you like, use a technology um yeah and like cater to like the, the local culture that's but yeah but it is cool though that the technology is accessible from border to border obviously like it's you know right that everybody has but it's like um you have like leapfrogging and all that but then you also have to like make it make the technology fit what people how like how they can use it and it's more about like behavior which i think is really really cool right. um yeah I, mean, I feel like even right now i mean there's always been like this explosion of technology and other other emerging markets but like right now for instance in latin america fintech's really big there now um southeast asia has been really big and like even india is blowing up and, and you can almost like clone different companies and put them there a lot of food delivery kind of like the, right. your base level things but i haven't like looked at the nuts and bolts of like these businesses and i bet they're like to your point very different in how they position themselves but high level goal is still the same uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's like, and I, I think you, you know, uh, the ecosystem there also isn't huge. Yeah. So it was pretty easy to get to know, um, like other tech people in the area, other young people in tech in Indonesia and Singapore, yeah. Stanford people in Indonesia and Singapore. And like, yes, you had like, for example, Gojek was basically Indonesian Uber and it's still doing very well, right? Like, I think. And it's become like kind of its own super app. Um, and you saw um, a lot of e-commerce there that was doing relatively well. And yeah. it's been a few years, so I think things have shifted around a bit. But um, yeah, it's definitely interesting to see like how does adoption change in these different areas and what's carried over, what's totally unique innovation. Yeah, so on. super cool. Um, yeah, so so I, I've you know we've chatted about Clash before and uh, read a good amount about you guys. Um, but yeah, what... So it sounded like in the early days, it was like, a, like you said, it was like a side project. And like, I feel like we're also kind of this renaissance of consumer coming back in a better way. So it's kind of like, right. which is awesome. Um, but yeah, like what was the, the journey of, of Clash itself and like you joining? Like what, what made you, what got you excited to stay? Because that's, that's pretty cool. You came out there for a week and then decided to stay and do it full time. Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, I think the, the story of Clash starts with like our founder and CEO, Brendan Nerdy. Um, and, you know, Brendan got a start. He was a Vine star, right? So um, oh, literally the first form of short form video influencers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he built up a following about a million people. And, um, you know, over several years, I think a lot of the vlog squad were kind of all his friends too. Um, but ultimately what happened, right, was um, uh, Vine shut down, right? The world progressed. Twitter kind of mishandled Vine. It was, it was really tragic. And um, uh, Brendan just got burnt out, right? I think he was 
he had this huge following and he was audience rich, but right. He himself like wasn't making a lot of money, um, like staying on friends' couches. And so um, I think he got really burnt out and and basically all the Vine stars had to make the choice either do I pivot to another platform or do I just move on? And so I think for Brendan, he was like, you know, I'm going to go to the business side and he decided to devote his career towards like helping creators earn money. So, um, you know, consulting for various platforms, um, uh, working in influencer marketing, um, and eventually was contracted to actually launch TikTok in the U.S. in 2018. Um, so, you know, got to see like behind the scenes of like, yeah, okay, yeah, ByteDance is super well endowed platform that was launching. How do they win over all these different creators? And, and he was contracted with bringing on all the creators on the, to TikTok. I think independent of that, you saw like this rise of like all these platforms that are focused on direct monetization. So like yeah. connecting fans directly with their, their favorite creators. And it just didn't exist right when he was a creator. And so Patreon was doing super well for YouTubers. Substack was emerging for Twitter, um, where you know you have these platforms where it's like, if you want more, yeah, um, join me on this other spot and like I can deliver you more. And it's typically either an audience that is hyper-engaged and is often willing to pay. Yeah. Um, and so you know, looking at that and looking at the short form creator space, I was really exploding with TikTok, with Instagram. But there was still like none of these platforms really focused on connecting um, fans and creators where they're at, uh, which is like on your phone yeah. in a familiar environment. And that was kind of the idea for Clash. Um, so work started on that, like, let's say, I think uh, early 2020 um, as kind of a side project for a handful of guys. And then um, when Trump announced that he was you know, going to ban TikTok, yeah, yeah. Um, the thought was like, hey, let's just we have a test flight app. It's not going to be done for seven more months with all the monetization tools. Let's push it out to the app store. Um, and they did push it out to the app store. It went viral, put down about 100,000 downloads kind of all at once, um, even now without all these new monetization tools. But I think, you know, Brendan was like, I don't want to have the same thing, like buying a die. I don't want to like watch all these TikTok creators not have a home. I want to give them a home. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's when I came out, like right at that time of that like test flight launch. Um, and uh, I think a couple of things like kind of what I observed is like, one is it was just like, frankly, it was total chaos. And I kind of loved it. I yeah. think it was like, you know, um, I, I think like the times when you grow the most and the times where you can figure out where leaders actually are or where they're good or bad is when you're in the inferno. And this just kind of felt like the ultimate inferno. Yeah. Uh, of just like this fast growing app and unclear. There was not really a lot of money. So I think that was one. And then I think the second is I thought my skill set was really complimentary with like a lot of just leeway. Like I can, you know, go in and I can pitch a company and I can manage a budget and work with a bunch of team members from engineers, people who are managing influencers. So I really enjoyed that through the fall. Uh, we ended up putting together a seed round with Alexis O'Hanian and his new fund 776. Nice. Um, and uh, they were great partners. And then they introduced us actually to... Dom Hoffman, who's the founder of Byte, or the founder of Vine. Um, and he started a second app called Byte and really, I think, admired what we had been doing in the fall and admired our vision and recognized that, like, you know, frankly, the social video space needed to consolidate. And there was this sort of massive opening for like the, the monetization Patreon for the short form influencer Gen yeah. Z. And so he was like, why don't we combine forces? And we ended up um, acquiring Byte uh, at the beginning of this year. Nice. Super cool, yeah. And I feel like that time period is so much going on. Um, and yeah, no, interesting point around that uh, 
that you see true leadership and you learn, you probably learn the most during like the most volatile times. Um, I bet, you know, there's a lot of things you guys learn in, in a pretty rapid, like a pretty small amount of time pretty quickly. Yeah, I think for sure. I mean, I think in the fall, right, we were bootstrapped. We, you know, had done, you could say a pre-seed round, but yeah. we were now like all of a sudden handling, I think like thousands of uploads a day and how do you create a stable app environment there? And then I think separately, um, uh, you know, we were trying to fundraise all at the same time without a, like, there wasn't a clear plan in place um, while there's all this like geopolitical stuff going on. And yeah. then I think, you know, even later than that, it's like how many seed companies need to go through an acquisition where yeah. they are the acquiring one um, of a of a product in a community that's 10 times their scale, right? So I think that's also been a big lift for us too is we uh, inherited some, I think, you know, problems that companies our size very rarely have to deal with. So it, it's been a fun challenge for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and, and um, definitely, definitely been been reading a lot and hearing a lot about the creator economy. Um, what are your thoughts on like why why it happened now, and and, do, and what do you think it's going to look like in like five years? Yeah, I think a couple of things. I mean, I think one is the I think first and foremost is TikTok. Um, I think the um, I, I think what TikTok did really smartly is that they decided, you know, I, I think they just for a long time had this thesis. If we have the best camera in the world yeah, and we have the best content serving algorithm in the world, then hypothetically you should create like just an infinitely scalable product. Right. And so what they did then is they spent like a billion dollars acquiring musically, flip a gram, a bunch of different camera apps to build like this, the ultimate camera uh, that allowed people to be super creative. And then they did a really good job building on AI that could uh, just get you the funniest videos you want the fastest. Yeah. Um, and so I think this just gave rise to a ton of new creators, right? They had the tool, they had the phone, and they now had an audience because they had this algorithm to build it. And so I think that was like the first, is it just, it you know, in the same way YouTube democratized uh, TV or you know video production for the desktop, this just did it for the mobile phone. Um, and so there's just now a lot more creators. Um, and I think second, as you saw, like with COVID, people treating this not as like a hobby, but as a job yeah. um, was the real accelerant there. Um, which like you saw brand deals on Instagram for sure, but Instagram became like highly manicured and kind of went yeah. more toward shopping. But yeah, uh, I think that was one. And I think the last thing that is kind of the most important part of the creator economy is that what I think the difference between now and will be increasingly so in five years versus let's say five years ago before is that the platforms owned the users. Yeah. Um, right. Is like the platform was like, you're on Instagram and that's it. You're not going anywhere else. Yeah. So like we have total control and what TikTok showed uh, was one, you could build out, you, you just got a lot more creators, but then second, they were becoming cross-platform. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I was able to migrate my audience from TikTok to Instagram, vice versa. And if I can do that, why not migrate them to Depop and sell some clothing there or migrate them to my Shopify? And you saw like the rise of Lincoln Bio. Um, yeah. And I think the the real creator economy, what it actually means is like the creators own the audience, not the platforms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I definitely agree with a lot with, with that. I mean, um, yeah, it's almost kind of like VCs kind of funded 
free user acquisition for these creators um, like the past 10 years. And now they have like a huge following. I, I will say, I feel like it's kind of like not highlighted as much, but it's, it's great that you brought it up that especially with TikTok, their algorithm, it's very like AI consumer where they're showing people the best content. Um, and that's a really great way to get discoverability. Right. Cause I feel like, cause other plat, you know, Instagram, even, I mean, I guess YouTube has a discovery feed, but like the YouTube is more like, you, you know, what you're looking for. They have trending, but it's more about, you, you know, you you know what you want to find. And then even with like Instagram, it's based around social networks and probably people that you know about or heard about online or from TV. And once again, you have to type in their handle and find them. You have to have that intent, but like this whole AI consumer angle is interesting for discoverability. I didn't read this article. That was funny. It's like kind of like fitting that China would almost make like uh, consumer, like not communist, but like force you to like bit, take away control of what you want to find and to show you the best things that they think you would like the most. So it's kind of like an interesting twist on, on consumer, but, but yeah, I, I definitely agree with, with everything you said. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I think, right. It's like the genius of, TikTok was flipping discovery and following, right? Yeah, like, yeah, just the the notion that like discovery is what's all powerful, um, and like that's where it's worth investing. Um, and uh, yeah, like I mean, right? It's like you build the best camera, you get tons and tons of videos. Now you have all these videos. How do you distribute them? Because you have so many different things to choose from. It's really smart, right? And I think the other thing too is props to them for just having the conviction to brute force that thesis into success. Yeah. Like they spent a billion dollars building the camera, they spent a billion dollars on users and then they took off. Yeah. And they kind of did show that there was room for another social giant, which to your point then created cross platform and demonstrated that the, the creators have the leverage, not the platforms, which, right. which that part of the, and I don't know, like, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this is like, where does it end though? Because I feel like creators do have the leverage now and they can jump around and, and it's, it's up to the, the platforms, I mean, Clash included, like to build the, 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 the mechanisms for them to like better connect with their audience and, monetize and make money and have a living. But like, where, where does it go from here of, of the creators having the full power in a way and like then having a multitude of platforms? Will there at a certain point be a bundling where, you know, what, what will happen in your opinion, you know, based on that? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think where I see it standing is that it really gets down to what are the business models of these platforms. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Facebook is 98, 99% ad revenue, right? Yeah. And so ultimately, what are they going to continue to optimize for? Having the most eyeballs on the platform and um, having the most ads that they can sell. Yeah. Um, and so if you think about that, right, then what is left from a... Um, or then we get into the creator space, which is direct monetization. And yeah. I think if we think about direct monetization, it gets a little bit different um, in that, uh, you know, a lot of times when you look at Patreon, when you look at OnlyFans, when you look at, um, let's say, uh, uh, Substack, what they're doing is they're closing things off, either through a paywall yeah. or you're having private feeds. And that is honestly antithetical to an ad format. Yeah. Um, so where I think things are going to land is you're going to have platforms who are really focused on direct monetization, um, and they're doubling down on that. And they're saying, no, we want to have a smaller subset of your audience, but extract more value from them. 
And the goal is to take more and more value from that core subset. And you're gonna have platforms that are like, no, our goal is to optimize for the widest. Um, I don't know if you can reconcile these two, right? Like, I don't think you can actually build something that's both optimizing for like extrapolating value from yeah. a core subset while also keeping it super wide to your fan base as well. But um, I mean, I think we're gonna see that shake out. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it, that's, and that, that is a really good point. It's like quality, it's like quantity over quality. And yeah, I mean, even the nature of a paywall reduces the number of people who can go there. And that's Facebook and the ad networks, they want, they want more people. They want a larger audience. Uh, that, that's really a good point. I do think, I, yeah. I was gonna say the other thing too is like, if the question is, are these competitive? Yeah. It is like, right. So YouTube and Patreon, like YouTube launched paid subscription the same month that Patreon launched. Yeah. And in the end, YouTube became this giant media conglomerate for sure. But the actual winner of monetization for YouTubers was Patreon. Yeah. And the thinking there is, does YouTube care because Patreon is allowing more YouTubers to exist? Yeah. I, I mean, and it's also, it's sustaining them. It's kind of like, it's right. like, it's like, you, you know, universal basic income for the creators right. because they're producing the content on YouTube, which then, you know, increases engagement, more eyeballs, which powers the ad engine, which then right. uh, it's like a, yeah, uh, that, that is a good point. Um, yeah, no, it, it, it is. It, once again, it's refreshing to see consumer. I've done like a lot of consumer and kind of like, I, I love it, but I hate it, but it's refreshing <laughs> to consumer now with money, with like revenue, yes. straight revenue. Like that's, that's amazing. Um, so it's definitely like a, a new world. Um, one, one theory I had was like, um, and you're in LA now. And also, I, I also think it's cool that there's a lot of different cities post COVID are like specializing in a way. And like LA's always been entertainment, um, you know, fashion, uh, media, but it's cool now to see even more of like technology and startups becoming more mature and verticalized. So there's a whole ecosystem of creator economy businesses in LA, which I think is really cool. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, yeah, even but, uh, paparazzi's based on Marina Del Rey. They're really big recently. Disposed, not far away out here. We're based out here. Um, uh, I mean, Snap, right, is like kind of the OG social giant yeah, that built yeah. out Silicon Beach. Cameo, um, right, like their tech team is based out of LA, I believe. Um, so it's definitely fun and it's definitely, it is very consumer focused. I think it's closely tied to this influencer entertainment world. It's just like yeah. the next generation of Hollywood um, in a lot of ways. And I mean, you see network, uh, uh, I can, just, yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot oh, of like yeah. consumer stuff in LA for sure. Yeah, no, and then like um, uh, Rex Woodbury has like a, I don't know if you know him, he's like a VC, has a really, really awesome um, newsletter to highly recommend people. Yeah, 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 I was reading it when it was a mail trip before Substack. Oh, wow, yeah, no, it, it's great. And like, there's so many uh, concepts from it that are so true. Um, all, everything around like authenticity being, being more in demand, which I think, you know, from like influencers and from, from brands, I think that's a lot of it's just noise. There's so much noise out there that you kind of like value more the, the noise that's, that's different. And also the fact that like Gen Z wants something different than, you know, everybody else. But one, one topic you talked about, which I, I thought about a lot is that he didn't fully mention this, but basically like, we're, I think we're just in another cycle of like the entertainment industry. Where it's like in the 70s and 80s, I think whenever you have um, like a very profitable industry that's new, where there's a lot of money coming in, um, you have like stars. And then when you have stars, you have agencies. And then when you have agencies, you have an economy. 
And so I feel like in the seventies and eighties, it was like a lot of like, you know, sports being televised and athletes starting to make a lot of money, you know, movies starting to make big, but you know, box office, high budget movies, TV shows becoming more mainstream, more TVs in everybody's house. Um, and then you had like these you know, kind of celebrities and then they had fan bases and all that. Like my theory and like I think Rex kind of talks a little about this is like that, um, that this is kind of like a new era of that, but it's not movies, TV, and it's about movies and TV that can narrow it down to, or like the TV screen. Um, it's now internet. It's now the computer, your phone. And so now you have like this new wave of these digital creators that are um, everything from like, you know, streamers to TikTok stars. So I feel like it's very much just like we're in just a new beginning of a new cycle. Yes. And I think the other thing I would, I would, flip on the other side of that too because like the creator economy too is I, I think everybody for I feel like loses sight of this often especially um you know people who are starting companies or businesses and it's like they lose sight that it's like you can't just serve the creator you have to serve the fan yeah. and if you aren't providing fan value then like you're going to miss out and I think a lot of a lot of people miss out on that but um in that same note from the fan perspective too uh you know take cord cutting like the byproduct of core yeah. writing is like, there's no more infrastructure, right? And instead I pay for Netflix. Yeah. Uh, I can subscribe on my phone or I can subscribe on, um, or I can't on my phone because of Apple, but I can subscribe on um, my laptop. If you can subscribe on, you know, via Stripe and just adding your credit card and yeah. you no longer have like a monthly bill that you're paying on, who's to say you can't have the same access point to an individual creator, like your favorite gamer, or your favorite streamer. Like the access point has also become closed right like it's it's not just that um from the consumer perspective of like before 10 years ago you were paying your bill for direct tv yeah. you know you had to like set up a, a billing system and a payment system and you got in the mail and like no individual can manage that now it's like oh like the same way you're paying for premium content is the like it's if you can get the same access point to pay yeah. for user generated content and i think that's what ultimately leads to this convergence that people have been talking about for so long is you need this acceleration of like, even the premium content is moving away from its old access points. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and people do forget that, but like the, like, the, like the technology infrastructure is what kind of moves things forward. And then, and then it's up to people to find applications for it. But you're right, I mean like without, the, without better payment infrastructure, none of this would be a lot, like enabled. It's the same thing with like, um, with, with blockchain and like digital payments, it's like, People like, you know, like to shit on like the old, you know, um, financial companies and, and all that. Like, oh, why do I have to wait two to three days, you know, to receive money, you know, overseas or, or you know, uh, internationally or whatever. It's like, yeah, it's because the technology wasn't there to support that. And that's actually what was required at the time. And now we have new technology where that's not needed anymore. And those fees aren't needed anymore. Um, but, yeah, it's, yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah. I'm curious, what have you seen as the... Cause I mean, you, you were in the consumer space as an entrepreneur. Yeah. I, yeah. One, one top line thing, which I think is interesting um, is that uh, a lot of things start in the adult industry and then move their way towards consumer. Um, and even dating as an in-between or I was in the dating space. So actually like two years ago, we were looking at like different dating apps and there's a couple of like consumer apps that no one really knows about. And one in particular highlight, which is like Big O Live. Um, oh yeah, Big O Live is like huge in like South Asia, right? Yeah, they're based in Singapore. It's like a company no one's heard of. I've actually like, I just, you know, being here in New York, I've now seen um, 
uh, like like a ton of billboards and like yeah. a ton of advertisement for them on like buses and the subway. I'm like, this is this is new, but they were like early in the game of live streaming and uh, and of tipping. And actually, those are kind of elements also from Asia. Um, so, and and there were like dating applications that hinged on kind of adult, and then it became less. Anyway, the point is, is like you can see this transgression of like or this this movement of of different functionality from kind of like the adult space in a way and then also from asia i think like it's a really cool like way to like a thesis like just to look at what's big in asia and like what's being done there that's not being done here um and you could argue that like eventually it'll come overseas i mean another example of that is like i already said live streaming and like tipping and that was kind of the beginning of of you know fan you know this creator fan relationship was simple tips and sending digital gifts um in asia and of these these apps but another one is like live streaming e-commerce which is really big in asia a couple friends working in the space um and it'll, i think it'll be a matter of time before it's more mainstream here i mean we kind of have it but it's not big yet so um yeah i don't know i i i will say like uh the the attack on data privacy and advertising i think is also causing a lot of these issues or making these changes but I, I do think it'll be interesting to see how Facebook and the Giants react. They're going to be primarily advertising, but um, there's this battle between Apple and Facebook right now, and even Google. Right. That's like that's pretty interesting. Um, and I also wonder how like crypto will play into things. But I know that's that's a lot. But I, it, it, the space is changing a lot. Uh, another high level thing, last thing I'll say is that I, I do think that when you have a new user base of people, they just need new things. And so we just have a ton of Gen Z people, and they just need new products. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, I mean, I think the last point is like super spot on. I think that is why I'm a, a big believer that some social photo app is going to come kill Instagram here pretty soon. Yeah. Um, and then I think, yeah, I mean, I think the adult thing as it was like, I totally agree with as well. Um, and I, I think the other thing I would say too is like, it's pretty, I don't think you can actually bend between the two. Um, like, I, I don't think you can really go, Right. I think there's a reason Twitch takes a hard line um, on like what they allow on their platform. Yeah. Because I think, you know, OnlyFans can try their best to expand into music. And I just like don't think it's going to happen. Right. Like I think it just becomes too stigmatized from a consumer yeah. perspective. And, and they're trying now, which is interesting. They are. I, I think they can definitely try. I just like don't think that they'll be able to crack the mainstream yeah. um, from a, a stigma perspective. But, you know, I think you could also make the, not that I agree with it, but I think you could make the argument that Snapchat, I mean, I can easily imagine a world where some like investor out there, Series A, Series B is like, how do you guys pivot out of a, out of a sexting? Yeah. You know? And I, I think that they were able to do far beyond that. So um, it is, yeah, it's a very interesting space. Consumers hyper fickle, but you can pull out some trends for sure. Yeah. And, 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 and the fickle part, is, that's a good point. I mean, I think also uh, with consumer, you can, like, I think the one concern with consumers, like a fad versus like something, like you can grow really, you can go viral in consumer, but you also can die in consumer. But I think now this, this monetization bridge now creates more stability where now it's an income and it's like a part of someone's life. Um, so I think that's, that's a cool new like addition to consumer. Like, you know, it's not just, I'm using this product because it's kind of fun. It's like, I'm using this product because I'm supporting my create my favorite 
creator and my creators using it because it supports their life. Right. And that you don't need from both the creator and from the business perspective, you don't need as many users. You yeah. don't need like growth at all costs. Um, yeah. yeah. You can definitely make something sustainable for like a smaller subset of users and not just become, you know, like we have to grow to a hundred million users or die. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, and yeah, and I guess like, uh, going back to the Gen Z point, any cool insights you've uncovered around, like, I feel like Gen Z is like such a, like a, uh, buzzword these days, but, but it's true. I mean, it is a new group of people, but any, any cool insights or, you know, you're in this space right now that you've seen, um, or yeah, just surprising things you learned about maybe marketing to them or building for them that maybe a lot of people don't know or think about. Well, I'm curious first, do you identify with Gen Z or millennial? Where do you think you fall? I, I was actually going to, so that's a really good, I was going to say the same thing. Uh, I think we're in a weird, I mean, I'm 95, so I don't know what. You're 95. Okay. Yeah. I'm 96. Okay. So it's like, depending on what, like we're like right in the cusp or whatever between the two. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, like I've maybe I'm a little bit more millennial, but there's, but I'll also like millennials are the older millennials are now 35, 40. I think it's 38 or something like that. So like, I don't have a kid and I'm not worrying about like house. So, but I don't know. I, I, I think I, one, one point on that really quickly is that I do think like, like think about outliers and like you know, the book by Malcolm Gladwell and timing. I do think it's interesting the time period that we were born around because we're kind of the upper end of a new generation and we've learned how to build and we have experience. So theoretically, you could, you could argue that um, timing plays a big role in it and that the, the, um, the builders of the Gen Z audience or generation will be, or of Gen Z will be probably the older people just in that group because they're first movers maybe. Um, so I don't know, but it's one theory. I don't know. What do you, what do you feel like? Yeah, I think, um, I think one is I find myself when people ask me about Gen Z, usually because of just like the group that I'm around, I'm like, oh, I definitely identify more Gen Z in this context, right? Like, yeah, it's yeah. like oh, it's me in front of investors. And it's like, okay, well, I actually am the youngest person here. And so if we're going to go into this, but you know, I don't use Snapchat as heavily anymore. And I think yeah, that yeah. makes me feel very old and dated. And, um, you know, I still use Instagram and like, uh, I have a Facebook account, yeah. right? Like that's, these are like things, oh, I am old. Like, but um, <laughs> um, I think a couple of things are interesting. I think one is I think closed off ecosystems will become much bigger for Gen Z. Uh, I think people are just like a lot less interested in like airing things publicly and widely, um, which is really like what birthed all of like social media in general, right? Like is this idea of like launching something super wide. But yeah. I think if you look at who are the new platforms that are thriving, it's like Snapchat is killing it. But the reason nobody knows they're killing it is because there's not a public feed. Um, right? Like that's one. I think Discord is killing it. Also not a public thing, right? Like it's a closed off community. Yeah. Um, and um, if you, you know, look at Dispo and Paparazzi, I think paparazzi, maybe you could say it's like wider open too, but like Dispo is trying to get at this notion of like, I think if they're smart, they'll try to keep it a little bit more insular. Yeah. Um, uh, which is interesting because how do you build network effects without public feeds? I still yeah. think it's doable. Um, and so I, I think that's one really sort of big difference on like their quarter perspective. Um, 
I think this is a very ironic also group as well. I think more so than um, some previous ones. And then, you know, like a lot of like, like I think, you know, Dispo is interesting because they're just taking the example of like Instagram meets Snapchat. I think with Clash, a lot of what we're seeing is like, how do you make something not feel transactional? Yeah. Um, how, yeah, like how do you make, uh, you know, the experience of sending money social? Because that's what people want. Um, they don't want it to feel like, I, you know, I, I, this is my thesis is like, I, I think another big issue with OnlyFans and with Cameo is that when we put a dollar sign between people, it no longer becomes like a social experience. It's transactional. Yeah. And so you need to, you know, this is why all these platforms do gifts or do coins, for example. Yeah. yeah. But even when you call it coins, like, are you still having something transactional? Um, I think is one. And then I think like the last thing, which maybe is a bit Gen Z related, but it's just kind of timing wise to your point around like where we are with time. I think the other thing that is interesting too about the space is like, um, and not to get too uh, sort of like in the realm of policy here, but uh, you know, we were growing up at a time where like when we were younger, the biggest company in the world was ExxonMobil. Um, yeah. And nobody was scared about ExxonMobil starting to make phones um, when phones kind of became obvious as like the next big thing. Yeah. And I think the big difference that we have today with some of these big giants is like, it's difficult to imagine almost any sector that they're unwilling to touch. Um, like if bioscience really becomes the next big thing, yeah. I am convinced Google will be there. You do think that? Yeah, I think they'll be there. Yeah. Um, no. and, and is that because of, are we at an inflection point? Because and I, I agree with that and the way like technology, it's, you know, exponential and everything, but, or is that just like, uh, like a presentist argument? Like that's like, that's our reference point, but in 30 years, it's like, you know, it's a completely different giant company. That's a biotech you know, Google's like still large, but they're, you know, they're still fortune 500, but they're not at the forefront anymore. It's some, you know, it's some Chinese company that no one knew about that just became like the largest ever well yeah so i guess tiktok is a good example of this but you know the, the question i would there is like is there a world in the u.s domestically where like a biotech company could actually grow to be the scale of google or does google take over their market before they can get there yeah or or does the government come in and i mean what's potentially going to happen and come in and actually enforce like stricter laws and breaking up businesses which right. which happened 100 years ago as well with like uh, like broken record with this, but like industrial revolution, you had monopolies from that and the government right. broke things up. We have with the information revolution or whatever you want to call it, computing revolution. Um, and now there's monopolies from that. Because um, I think the network effects are so strong that you need someone to come in and break that up. Um, yeah, and I think that's kind of the inevitability that I see as well. So, I mean, I think that's going to be interesting. Like, you know, I was reading some piece, I don't know where it was, but it was like, is antitrust going to be the deregulation, the next deregulation, the yeah. same way deregulation spawned tons of new businesses. Yeah, yeah. If yeah. you start enforcing antitrust, you actually spawn a lot more, um, you know, in the economy as well. Yeah, that, kind of random, but I read this article, article recently about um, food delivery companies in New York now, they're trying to push a law to, to because now there's so many food delivery companies and now restaurants are, you know, they kind of, you know, uh, on one end. And um, there's now, they're trying to push a law to 
force the food delivery companies, the aggregators, the middlemen to give the, the customer data to the restaurants themselves because that's like their customer base and like it gives them more options to use that data. Um, I don't know if that'll happen, but like it's an interesting kind of like, I think we kind of also have more of an anti-tech sentiment or like um, especially around data and like monopolies. But yeah, it, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what happens because I, I definitely do think we're these ma- these massive companies and they're really smart too can kind of own everything. I mean, look at Amazon. You know, they're, they're right, they own everything. Yeah, and I think the and I I remember at Stanford, I think I asked like Reed Hoffman this. I was like, you know, I mean, I think we were on the cusp of this. Of like, yeah, are we gonna lose? wayside of them and his point which i think was good was that google and facebook are still free to consumers gas is not um and i think that's like the biggest difference is right if you look at uh like uh consumer sentiment um you know google is do no evil and you know facebook and google should be and apple are supposed to be protecting our privacy from the government um which is like in every other industry, you'd expect the government to be protecting us from the, the private sector. Um, you know, like pharmaceuticals, like yeah. food, oil and gas, et cetera. And so, uh, or like banking, financial services, especially. What do you think is the best analogy you can make? But then I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think the the big sort of upside that these consumer companies have is that they are free consumer companies. So I love my free Google search. I love my free Facebook how negative can people's perspectives really get? Um, and I think that's changed a bit, a lot over the past few years, just given, I think the last administration, and I think just people's distrust of these large institutions now in general, and they're kind of falling out of favor. And I think they realize that, but um, yeah, I mean, it does feel like the inevitability here is there has to be some sort of action taken, you know, yeah, against uh, them. It, it, that is a really good point. That every other industry we look for the government to protect us and then it's like with consumer it's other way around um okay. like very you know specifically yeah yeah i never thought of it that way i mean probably because we don't they don't we don't really know the the value of our our data yet you know i think it's still not mainstream i still do think the whole like i mean data is important but i do i like data the value of data is only it's data is only valuable if it's like on aggregate and it's like huge scale Otherwise, it's kind of worthless. Um, do you think consumers care about their privacy? I don't think so. What do you think? No, I mean, I think the rise of TikTok is like, this is the perfect example of like, literally nobody cares. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think like maybe a couple of like government officials who tell the, you know, like government sector, like, hey guys, don't use TikTok because TikTok yeah, or is. Chinese are collecting our data. But I think it kind of goes to show that like consumers will gladly take a high quality product in exchange for their data. It's like a price they're willing to pay, um, which is interesting. I just, I mean, again, how much does the government want to prioritize it on behalf of its citizens? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It'd be yeah, it'd be interesting to see where that where where things go. Um, yeah, a couple more questions, and I really appreciate this, Justice. Uh, so, with um, what are your thoughts on? Um, like creator um, communities or, or 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 more so of like the creator life cycle. I've heard like a lot of people like criticize this a little bit of like, it's very much like a, it's, it can be grueling for a lot of people. And that's why people need like communities or some, some way to support them, but, and companies are paying them to create content, but it does seem like at, at a certain point there, there might be 
by creator fatigue or, you know, just burnout? Like, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? I think there definitely is. I mean, I think what one thing people don't understand is like, it is a lot of work, right? And especially yeah. as you think about, um, you know, you're being asked to make content, you're being asked to make content on different platforms. Um, you're starting like, uh, you're starting a bunch of things for your LinkedIn bio to like serve smaller subsets of your community there. Um, and it is like very much, I think, geared in this uh, hustle culture for sure. Um, I think what also is interesting though, is that um, like, I, I still think we're so early that I do think it should ideally become easier and there's clear tools that become obvious, right? And so um, what I'm wondering, right, is for example, it's like, uh, do things start to consolidate where it's like, okay, this is the lowest friction and the highest value for the creator and fan. And that's the platform that ends up winning. Yeah. And it's because it's, you know, it's mobile first and it's like already just on their phone where they're already using yeah. or because it's just, it doesn't require new content, right? I think the smart thing about Cameo is it's like, you only do it when you are getting paid and yeah. you control the price point yourself. And so there are some tools where it's not just like, you can earn money, but it's also like, it strikes this balance that you need to. And, you know, at Clash, I think a lot of our thinking is like, a lot of this stuff is not being built where fans and creators are interacting the most, which is on their phone in short form video. Yeah. So if you can meet them there, I think there's much greater opportunity. Um, uh, so I think that's sort of, I think the first piece on the creator breakout. And I feel like you mentioned, oh, and like on the communities element too, um, like communities of creators. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be like increasingly a thing where it's like, I am a YouTuber, I am a Twitch streamer, I am a TikTok creator. Like people identify like with that. Um, and the same way, you know, I think people identify with being an actor or being an athlete um, because it is kind of the shared experience. And I think as it becomes like a sort of wider subset of people and like the workforce per se, or, or just, you know, the population, I think there'll be increasing hubs of that as well. Like it'll be interesting to see like, what does LA look like in 10 years? Yeah. Is it still all about like produced entertainment or is it like a huge influencer hub as well? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, and do you think most people, or uh, yeah, what, what do you think a lot, way more people are gonna become like creators? Like you think, you think there's like a, do you think it'll just keep growing and there'll be more of a workforce or just these creative roles? Um, or do you think there's like some like level where people will try that and it won't work out and they'll have to get normal jobs. Like, I mean, I noticed there's a big push towards like, you know, freelancing and kind of like COVID accelerated, accelerated that too. But like, what's this, what is sustainable for like a culture, like our economy, like in terms of like, is there enough supply and demand of, of these different creators? Um, I think that we're nowhere near the peak of like the number of creators who will be creating and the number of fans who also be willing to pay and support these creators. Yeah. So I think, you know, we're several years away from that anywhere reaching some sort of equilibrium. Um, but I feel like you could say the similar thing about like in many ways, I think the creator economy is supposed to be the gig economy, but good for the world. Yeah. Right. It's empowering people to pursue their creativity um, and earn a living while doing so. Yeah. And in the same way that I think like the gig economy, the sharing economy, for a lot of people, it's full-time jobs. 
for a lot of people, it's part-time side hustles. Um, I, I think it's going to be similar in the creator space as well, where, you know, there's millions and millions and millions of Uber drivers and door cash delivery people. And there's still a subset of people who make their full income on TaskRabbit that maybe isn't quite as large. But I think you can see something similar where it's like, yeah, I make all my money from YouTube rats. But, you know, like there's going to be a huge long tail of people who are like, oh, yeah, like I actually I have a clash and that's like a stable income for me or I have a Patreon and that's also stable for me. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's like become supplementary. You know, I clash. I think like our mission is how do you get people just to quit that coffee shop job and pursue creating full time? Yeah. Um, and I still think we're nowhere near the peak of that. Um, but yeah, I'm sure that we will reach the equilibrium. I think what's also going to be interesting too is how much does so far, I think produced content like you know acting and, and Netflix hasn't yeah. really seen much of a huge hit because of social media yeah. and like creator UGC content. I think we're going to see a shift towards people willing to pay for UGC content. I don't think you're actually going to see a bunch of blending between the two. I think the skill sets will remain rather different from the creative perspective. Like I think you'll see that many creators end up on Netflix, for example. I think that's going to be a failed endeavor, but I do think you could see a lot of people paying TikTok creators in other ways. It just won't be via Netflix. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I've, I have a couple uh, creator friends and they're always like now wondering how can they like monetize their brands more and everything. And um, I mean, do, do you think, that's a great point. Do you think that there'll be some sort of like, like I, even with my friend, I was just like, just, just, just like speaking out and just brainstorming. Like, you think there'll be ever a movie format or long form content? I mean, I guess that's YouTube, but like more polished, but still UGC. Like, there'll be some some other version that's longer. Like, somebody paying for something longer that's um, one to many, not like a one on one experience, but like some new types content formats that we're not maybe maybe aren't that don't exist yet. I think Triller is attempting this for sure with their like pay-per-view sort of new model that they suppose they're going live or public with um, where, you know, they've been doing all the the fights. Yeah. Um, they bought versus, I think they're like, okay, this is kind of the convergence of UGC and produce, but honestly, it's, just, it's increasingly produced content. Um, do I think there'll be like long form produced content that thrives? Maybe. I'm a little bit more skeptical. Yeah. Very similar to, I think, how Quibi of like the idea of short form hyper-produced content didn't really pick up as yeah. well. Um, you could make the argument that Quibi was just too early. We need to have paid UGC first. And once I'm used to paying for UGC, I'm going to be willing to pay for premium. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe consumer taste will just be, if I'm sitting down to watch an hour long thing, I expect a superhero movie with a bunch of special effects. Yeah. Um, I think it really just comes down to what are, I think it's, again, like, I think this is more so what do the consumers want, not so much what do the creators want. Yeah, yeah. And it's pretty hard to know what, what people want. Honestly, it's kind of. That's consumer, you know, yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, last thing I'll, I'll ask about is like, I mean, related to like this, it does seem like there is like this this content battle where like big media platforms. I've actually always wondered this, like how do, um how do how do these platforms 
figure out a price to, to charge for content, especially when their platforms are subscription based and it's not advertising based. Um, like I've always wanted that math, like, like how, like, I feel like right now we're kind of in like a, maybe a growth, an unscalable growth phase, more in like the, the Netflix and the streaming giants, just trying to get as much content out there. <clears throat> and they're not really evaluating profitability. They're just trying to get like, it's almost like a, a, a race to just capture everybody. Like, what are your thoughts on just like, just this big media battle that we're seeing like at the, at the, at the high end? Um, yeah, I mean, I think on the big media side, it's, um, I think my first take is like, it seems to be playing out much faster than I expected. Like the winners and losers are emerging very quickly. Um, yeah. You know, Disney, it's crazy that they debuted Disney Plus in what, like late 2019 and they're just considered a winner and you know hbo has failed um and um yeah i guess um a lot of people expect like a rebundling which is probably true and either further consolidation here in the next couple of years um i think one thing that i find sort of particularly strange about this space is apple and amazon in particular and that like Amazon says they're one of the biggest streaming services in the world. I don't think that's justifiable at all. I can't imagine how anyone can believe that statistic. Yeah. Um, people are subscribed to Prime for quite a number of reasons. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of a loophole. I, you get it for It's free. a total loophole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think the same is going to be true with Apple. Like, you know, I, I think they're going to, they're banking that eventually they'll build up a nice premium library of content that you'll just finally fold and convert to Apple music, um, yeah. to, you know, get a discount on your iCloud and Apple music and also get Apple TV. Um, I don't actually think it's like a streaming service. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess the last thing on this point is like, I think having content is not enough. Um, it is kind of what I would say is like Disney has a giant empire of theme parks and merchandise and franchises and box office movie tickets and they have this integrated plan and the streaming is a way to sustain that. I think Amazon and Apple have other reasons that streaming sustains that as well. And I think Netflix, you're starting to see some cracks in the armor with like, you know, if you are just content, can you just continue to make more and more and more and more in scale? Or do you have to start to have another reason yeah. that like you want to have the distribution platform? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, that that is a great point. They're kind of like the only content only platform. The other one, you know, old, old media is content only. They have advertising. So it's kind of. Well, yeah, and I think like this is also a distinction of like, do you need to be a, a content, um, what is it, producer or just a distributor? It's so, like Sony's doing super well and they just decided to not do DTC. They're like, forget it. We'll just sell all of our stuff to yeah. Hulu and to Disney and to Netflix. And I think that was, you know, maybe wise, like why get in this when I think Paramount is like, you know, why do we actually need to yeah. be distributing? Can we just be creators? So maybe there's room for, you know, Netflix to survive as one of the sole distributors and everybody else decides like, you know, it's easier for us not to worry about the distribution. Yeah. We can just worry about producing and selling to everybody else. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely could see that. Um, yeah, before I forget, I should have asked earlier, uh, what's, what's the vibe been like in, LA with between the creator community and like the tech community. I feel like, you know, like I was saying before, a lot of tech people like yourself, obviously you're kind of in the middle, but 
how, how has it been that interaction between kind of these two different communities that like, you know, weren't really interacting that much before? Yeah, I mean, like TikTok US, right, is based out of here. I think they're in Culver City. Um, I think you saw like in COVID, the rise of the hype houses, which I think brought a lot of attention to LA and just like these Hollywood Hills homes where yeah. people are setting up all the time. Um, and I think also you're seeing like a bunch of startups pop up. And I think it's because, you know, they're they're connected in the same way that, you know, you need to think about creators and fans, you need to think about creators and the platforms too. So like the yeah. platforms are meeting them where the creators are. And I think that's part of the, the power shift, right? Is like all these other companies were always based up in Silicon Valley, but really the talent's always been in LA. Yeah, yeah. Right, like everybody's always, for the most part, based in LA or New York. Yeah. And uh, I think the shift is that you're starting to see like these newer players being like, okay, let's get to the talent faster. Um, if we want to win them over, we need to be where they are. They come to LA. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I and I met someone, or I was chatting with someone in the, in the talent, uh, talent industry world, and they were just saying that's like, it's very hard to, or it's all about relationships is what they were saying. And like, I was, you know, I wonder if you can automate or, you know, scale that, but it seems to be a lot about like trust and relationships. Um, amazing. Well, Justice, I appreciate you have, having you on here. Um, really excited also to hear more about Clash the next couple of months um, and, and stay updated on that. Um, but yeah, it's been great to hear more about what you've been up to and really about the creator economy, which I think is like super exciting right now. Yeah, for sure. It was nice to up with you as well. Great chatting.